Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which was published in 2019, and The Wellness Trap, which came out on April 25th and is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more and order it now at christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap. Hey there, welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and my guest today is author and rhetoric professor Colleen Durkach, who joins me to discuss why wellness sells and her new book by that name, how wellness culture promises an alternative to the biomedical and pharmaceutical model but fails to deliver, why it's important to acknowledge that certain aspects of wellness culture are helpful to people even as we critique its harms, and lots more. I really love this conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you. Before I do, a few quick announcements. If you're in the Los Angeles area, I'll be doing a rare live book event on July 16th, and I'd love to see some listeners there. You can get all the details at christyharrison.com slash events. That's christyharrison.com slash events. This podcast is brought to you by my new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is now available wherever books are sold. It explores the connections between diet and wellness culture, how the wellness space became overrun with scams, misinformation, and conspiracy theories, why many popular alternative medicine diagnoses are misleading and harmful, and what we can do instead to create a society that promotes true well-being. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and buy the book. That's christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap. This podcast now has a full-fledged newsletter where I answer questions about wellness diets, how to spot wellness scams and misinformation, how to know whether you've gotten a dubious diagnosis, or anything else I cover on the podcast. Just subscribe at rethinkingwellness.substack.com to get new answers every other week and a chance to ask me your questions. And if you upgrade to a paid subscription, you'll also get tons of bonus Q&As, early access to podcast episodes, plus bonus episodes, occasional community threads, and other members-only content. Just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to learn more and sign up. And by the way, you can also sign up for the newsletter to get transcripts of the podcast delivered to your email every week. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Colleen Durkach. Colleen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really great to connect with you. And I'm excited to talk because we have a lot of alignment, I think, in in our books, our most recent books and things we cover. And you have a longstanding interest, I think, in this area of wellness culture. And I'm just curious, like what your personal experience of wellness culture has been and how you came to be interested in studying it. I came through a variety of different ways. I think academically, wellness really emerges out of my last book, my first book. And in that book, I was really interested in how the idea of evidence gets mobilized in arguments about the safety and efficacy of alternative health practices, such as acupuncture and chiropractic. And in that book, I really focused primarily on medical literature and so how medical studies of practices like acupuncture are designed, how are they reported in journals, how do people respond to them, and then how do those studies get taken up in public culture. And through the course of that project, I really started to see, especially sort of the latter years I was working on it, the increasing rise of the term wellness. I was just seeing it everywhere. And so that really led me to think about what is it that that draws people to alternative health practices and increasingly, I was seeing that wellness was was actually the answer. So I was interested in understanding more about how that works. Personally, I also came to the topic partly just out of my own kind of personal experience. So I lived most of my early adult life in East Vancouver in the West Coast. So I was kind of caught up in kind of that West Coast sort of natural health culture. And I had a, a 
early, like a teenage experience with chiropractic that prompted some really interesting questions for me about how we come to decide which health practices and practitioners to consult with and and not to consult with. And so that also led me to thinking about how we think of some kinds of health practices as being for illness, and but some of them seem to be more about wellness. And so all of those things kind of coalesced into the formation of this book. Mm, that's so interesting. You make the distinction in the book between what you call the logic of restoration and the logic of enhancement. And I think that's a little bit what you're talking about in terms of wellness and illness, right? But can you define and distinguish those terms a bit for us? Sure. Yeah. So the logic of restoration is really, in many ways, it's the logic of medicine. It's the logic of pharmacy. It's about returning the body to a prior state of functioning. When I first started this project on wellness, I actually wanted to make a kind of a crankier and more clever sort of gotcha argument that wellness was really a new form of illness. And I do think that that's true in the sense that it's premised on a logic of restoration, of restoring the body to to this prior state of functioning. But I also saw another kind of counter thread. Well, it was counter at some points, and sometimes it was actually concurrent, which was the logic of enhancement. And the logic of enhancement is really ostensibly, at least, the logic of wellness. It's about positivity and balance. It's about optimizing the body and the mind and the self. Rather than restoring the body, it's about making the body and really the mind itself better than it already is. Well, and it's interesting because, I mean, in writing my book about wellness too, I was trying to keep the idea of wellness and illness separate, I think is really hard to do because I think there's this notion of optimization and this idea that we should always be optimizing and always striving for better better health and well-being, whatever capacity. And yet also, I think so many people with any sort of pre-existing illness or symptoms of an illness or something that's undiagnosed and that they're not sure about are attracted to wellness culture for its promises of healing. And so it's really hard to separate out wellness from illness, actually. And I think they are very intertwined. And I think that it's really interesting the way that you point out that these distinctions of the logic of restoration and the logic of enhancement really break down in wellness culture, where like the logic of enhancement tends to fold back into the logic of restoration. So can you explain a little bit how that works and how you see that play out? So what I found when I examined examples of wellness discourse from across a range of texts, I looked at advertisements, websites, newspaper articles, magazine articles, blogs, and I also interviewed 40 participants and looked at a few other data sets as well. And what I found consistently is that when people talk about wellness sort of in a general sense, they really talk about it in very positively charged language. They talk about it in terms of sort of felicitous excess, like really just happy abundance. And you see a lot of verbs like boosting. So in a very general sense, people think of wellness as a positive thing that they do for themselves to sort of optimize and improve themselves. But when I asked focused questions in the research interviews, the language that participants used really shifted quite suddenly to a language of sort of illness and symptom treatment and restoration. And so, and it it was often quite fluid. So they would talk about taking a supplement because they wanted to promote immune health, but then they would most often reach for that supplement actually when they were feeling ill. And so there was just a lot of slippage between these two different approaches. Another thing that I saw frequently was when individuals talked about using a supplement to restore their sleep or their mood, or, you know, maybe to restore their iron levels. Um, When those symptoms improved, they actually talked about how they keep taking them just because their energy and their mood, you know, their cognition could always be better. And so there was a real kind of fluid movement between those poles. And sometimes it even happened in the same sentence. I recall one participant who was talking about using a supplement to optimize her blood. I can't remember the details now, but it was about, I think, making more hemoglobin or something. And so she used the supplement, but then it really became clear that actually it was about treating low iron and it would often happen even in the same sentence. So I found that really interesting because... What we think we're doing when we engage in wellness behaviors isn't always actually what we're really looking for. And so I found that kind of cycling between the logics of enhancement and restoration really fluid and sometimes could be mapped onto each other quite directly. 
It's so interesting that you articulate that. And I feel like that's something that I grappled with in trying to like define and explain what wellness is. I couldn't quite put my finger on. And I think that you articulate that so beautifully that it is this like slippage between the two logics. You also talk about how wellness promises something outside of the pharmaceutical model and the like sick care of the conventional healthcare system. But then in fact, wellness actually conceives of our bodies and our health within a biomedical framework, just the same as those other systems. So I'm curious if you can unpack that a little bit for us and sort of how wellness slots into this biomedical framework. Yeah, it's, you know, and that's one of the things that I found surprising really as I worked on this project was how deep the roots go within wellness culture and natural health, how deep the roots go into the biomedical model and into the world of pharmaceutical marketing, especially. And so wellness culture as it currently manifests really approaches bodies as infinitely improvable. Bodies become projects that we as good citizens and as good people need always to be working on. And this was really interesting to me because optimization seems kind of like the opposite of restoration, but in fact, failure to optimize or failure to self-improve is itself, you know, it's a form of failure it's pathologized really within wellness culture. So not only now do we have to, you know, get better when we're sick, but we have an obligation to ensure that we are as, you know, well as we can be or maximally well. And that pathologization really is characteristic of biomedicine and particularly of pharmaceuticals. And so that was surprising to me because wellness seems on the surface so opposite that. Yeah, you've said that there's like the idea of wellness, it becomes incipient illness, right? Like that if you're well and you're pursuing wellness, but you're never totally achieve wellness because it's this thing that's always like receding in the distance. It's never quite attainable. And so the lack of being optimally well, whatever that means, is actually like you're just at risk for illness. You're always like teetering on the edge of illness. Right. Yeah. And that idea, because wellness has no ceiling and that's a core part of my argument is wellness. There's, you don't ever reach maximally well, there's always something else you can do. And in fact, this is where multidimensional models of health and wellness can be challenging. They sound good, right? It sounds like an inherent good to think of health as more than just whether the body machine is running. Okay because that's kind of a very traditional biomedical approach. And so widening the scope of how we think about health is positive in many respects, but one of the hazards is that it really expands the scope in which we can be ill. And so in that case, it's not just failure to optimize in one domain, but we can you know, fail to optimize in multiple domains. So there we see that impulse of medicalization. You know, when we saw thinking back to sort of the emergence of medicalization as a concept with sociologist Peter Conrad in particular talking about how medicalization really is the process through which ordinary bodily states become reframed as medical problems, particularly when there's an intervention at the ready to treat it. And so he tracked, you know, this is going back to like 94, I think was his first article on this. And then he's that concept has really taken root in social studies of health, but the idea, you know, where baldness can be reframed as a medical problem that has an existing treatment, erectile dysfunction, the same kind of thing. And what I found is that wellness was actually really becoming medicalized in a significant way as well, except with the difference that now it's not just the body that can be pathologized, but it can also be, I'm not engaging enough self-care psychologically, for example. So I think that's something to be really cautious about. Yeah, it's almost like this new yardstick to measure ourselves against or this new stick to beat ourselves with, really, when we don't measure up, which is, yeah, a flaw in the model. Like, And I've, I've tried to think about what is a model of well-being that is sort of more true to what we actually might want to encourage and strive for, thinking about like centering mental well-being and social connection and economic stability and stuff like that. But even that can be twisted into this yardstick to measure yourself slash beat yourself with, you know, so it's like, can we ever really get away from, you know, is the solution maybe not conceiving of a model of wellness or illness at all, but just sort of like 
doing less to measure the the health or well-being of bodies and people in general. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think that that's really interesting and you touch on some important things and there is exciting stuff happening out kind of in different wellness spaces that are are challenging kind of dominant models because the dominant model that I critique is really about how if you really boil it down it's it's just more stuff for us to buy and do typically by hiring somebody to be a guru or to coach us or I don't know I think about this a lot with for example like naturopathy and I have friends who are naturopaths and really good friends but one of the key things about the model is a lot of people are drawn to something like natural medicine because of the word natural and I know you've had Alan Levinovitz on the podcast before and he's done great work in understanding the kind of really spiritual and religious undertones of that idea of the natural but if you look at practices like naturopathy the range of tests now that you can do there where you you know with regular surveillance of all kinds of different things like hormones that aren't even done in in mainstream biomedicine but it's you know something else to pay for that requires another intervention typically you know it requires supplements and so it all kind of spins out in a way that i think that this is kind of what happens to health and bodies under capitalism. And so there's really interesting work happening, grassroots stuff, especially where people are asking questions about, do we really need to meditate our way out of precarious employment? Is that even possible? There are increasingly compelling calls for systemic approaches to problems that have so far been treated really as individual problems and individual failures. Yeah. And that's one thing I see in wellness culture a lot is like the total ignoring of social determinants of health and the fact that economic security and avoiding discrimination and having a access to safe sources of water and clean air and access to good health care. Like those are the things that actually promote well-being at the societal level far more than individual behaviors ever could. And that's just totally missing, I think, from from the kind of typical wellness culture model. Right. And I think, you know, you can't monetize that. I think that that's a really big piece of it. The kinds of systemic solutions I think that we need, they're really expensive and they don't make anyone any money. And that's a real challenge, right? Like this is something that, you know, people have asked me about my book and said, okay, well, what's the solution? And I mean, I don't have an easy solution because we're so embedded in, you know, this very particular framework of thinking about bodies and thinking about health and and just, you know, for us living in contemporary, like 21st century capitalist society, it's, it's sort of the nature of the beast, really. What we can do, though, is ask questions and we can draw attention to things that need attention as a way to add pressure so that, you know, for example, individuals who face pressure from their workplaces, you know, to do like lunchtime yoga can push back and say, you know, what we need is more reasonable working hours and reasonable working conditions and those kinds of things. So, so it does, you know, I think there's potential for shifting the conversation. And I think there's a wonderful chorus of books right now, including yours that are really lending weight to that pressure. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be a part of this moment. You know, I think a lot of us were thinking about these things in tandem because, I mean, for me, like just seeing the pandemic and how striking the impact of social determinants of health were and are, especially, you know, as that emerged in the early days of the pandemic with like who was being the most impacted and who was able to stay at home and not expose themselves to the virus and stuff was it was just so clear that social determinants of health played such a huge role in people's outcomes there and then seeing the way that wellness culture capitalized on that moment to like sell immune boosting supplements and you know you had all these multi-level marketing people coming out and saying that their essential oil was going to cure covid or whatever and like just wild claims kind of abounding left and right and just the striking difference between wellness cultures, like individualistic approaches and sort of capitalistic approaches to COVID prevention and cure versus like what was actually happening at the systemic level and, you know, the level of social determinants of health, I think was really interesting. That, Yeah, you know, that was, there was this moment that I was so hopeful at the beginning of COVID, which is a weird sentence to say, I'm aware, but it seemed for the first couple of months, at least, you know, I'm in Canada, and I think the Canadian response was a little bit different, maybe, but it seemed that public health authorities, political leaders, and various other interested parties, the media, all seem to get on board with the idea of health 
on a collective level and on a population level rather than on an individual level. And it was, you know, it was so exciting for me as somebody who studies health communication and to look at how medical health officers, you know, would appear in the news and talk about stopping the spread in various ways and talking about things like herd immunity in ways that were really accessible and appreciable to sort of everyday people. And it was this really, really exciting moment because I'm a cynic at heart, but like, I just was optimistic that this might change the general conversation around health. And then when all of the restrictions were in place, you know, it was all kind of for the the benefit of the good, but it was, you know, it was very easy to forget about the Amazon workers who were delivering all the packages to our houses and, you know, the delivery people, the people stocking warehouses. And it was kind of easy to forget about that, but it was a piece of a broader conversation. But then slowly as all the restrictions were peeled away and then masks became a personal choice and vaccination became a personal choice, it's sort of, you know, that moment kind of vanished. But it was, you know, for a minute there, I was pretty hopeful and excited. I know I felt the same way too. I felt like it was finally social determinants of health were finally getting into the mainstream conversation. And yeah, all the talk of, you know, stop the spread, flatten the curve, your mask protects me, my mask protects you, all of that stuff. It just felt like there was finally some emphasis on collective well-being. And then, I mean, in the US, I think it was far less than in Canada, but still was happening to some extent. And then I mean, everywhere this is happening now, but I think it maybe started in right-wing American spaces and probably in other countries as well. This idea that it was oppressive to make people wear masks or to have shutdowns and right-wing seizure of these ideas and vilifying of public health figures and turning it into this, like it kind of got folded into like pre-existing debates, I think, and pre-existing culture war issues that were raging on already. But then, you know, you had this interesting nexus of conspiracism and anti-vax movement and right-wing ideology. I know you were on the Conspirituality podcast, and I, I think they do such a great job of unpacking that nexus. But yeah, it's just it's just gone in such weird directions. And I couldn't have predicted that, I think, at the beginning of the pandemic, or I guess I didn't want to predict that. I'm also a cynic at heart, but I think, but I have a really optimistic side too. I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm equal measures, cynical and optimistic. Yeah. So I I was hopeful and had those hopes dashed pretty quickly as well. Yeah. It la- you know, it lasted a long time. So in Canada, you know, and I think it's because our health system is so wildly different in many ways. You know, we have publicly funded healthcare. It is universal. It's not perfect. And it is, you know, uneven across the country, but I live in Ontario. I live in in Toronto, Ontario, and we have a conservative government. And what was interesting is that Ontario actually had the longest lockdown across the country. Um, We were always able to move around. So we weren't locked down in our homes, but schools were closed the longest. And I feel like without any evidence to back this up at this moment, I think the scene in Canada was quite inherently different because it wasn't so sharply politicized. We did have the kind of trucker convoy that you probably heard about and and ended up in DC as well, I think. But that was quite fringy and mainstream conservative politicians, you know, were very quick to distance themselves. It was a really interesting cultural moment because even though the pandemic kind of shifted from the kind of really acute emergency phase, you know, where it was about flattening the curve, et cetera, there was still a kind of a broader sense of collectivity that lasted really quite a long time. Like, I think, what are we? It's 2023 now, spring 2023. And I think hospitals in my province only just dropped their mask mandate in the last couple of weeks. So up until then, you had to have a mask in a hospital. So so really quite longer restrictions. So in some ways, this question about COVID-19 and public health, the cultural differences between the US and Canada, kind of if we zoom out, we can think about those distinctions even with wellness itself, because my book looks at wellness in both Canada and the US. So I have research data from Canada, particularly interviews. And I did an analysis of of a data set of public comments on a petition against supplement regulation. But most of my public texts are from the US. And so, so I do kind of track some of those distinctions a little bit. And so I think there are some kind of characteristic differences between approaches to public health or 
let's say the health of the public. So not public health as a discipline, but, but the idea of kind of social determinants of health. There are some, some major distinctions between Canada and the U S but I think that that COVID didn't leave a huge imprint on how we talk about things like wellness in terms of social determinants of health, but maybe there's like just the tiniest, tiniest little impression. Well, I think that transitions nicely into talking about language and rhetoric of wellness. You write that wellness is a language, which I really find interesting. I actually majored in rhetoric as an undergrad. So, you know, I really appreciate the idea of exploring the rhetoric of health and wellness and like the rhetorical power of the concept of wellness. Can you explain a little bit what you mean when you say that wellness is a language and why do you think it's important to examine wellness in this way at the sort of rhetorical linguistic level as opposed to only critiquing the wellness industry, which I know important critiques have done as well? Yeah, and they are important for sure. My point of intervention is language always because I'm a language scholar. And so I refer to wellness as a language in the sense that it's a code for communication. Maybe it's not technically a language. Um, maybe it's more of a dialect because it's, you know, not officially sanctioned. And, uh, you know, it's obviously not a complete language, but it does have characteristics of language that are important to recognize. It has a kind of internal grammar. It has an internal set of logics and symbolic patterns. I'm using the idea of language there really metaphorically. No linguist would ever agree with me that wellness <laughs> is a language. But what I mean by that is that language really provides the stuff we think with. It happens really below the level of everyday consciousness. And that's, I think, the kind of important distinction with my book and other contemporaneous books about wellness and the wellness industry. My book says something slightly different. And so it kind of, you know, it's it's a voice in a chorus where what I'm able to offer is that because wellness works like a language, it really becomes a framework for thinking about and seeing the world that goes beyond marketing campaigns. It goes beyond influencers and producers because it becomes part of all of us in the ways that we think about our bodies and the ways that we think about what to do when we feel an ache or a pain or a cold coming on. How do we make decisions about our health and our bodies. And so using that metaphor of a language kind of gets at that idea. And it really moves the emphasis away from those who are consciously out to sell you and more looks at sort of the diffuse patterns of speech and talk and writing and discourse that happen kind of at all scales in contemporary life. Whether it's an ad for a supplement I see in the back of a magazine or the conversation I have with myself when I'm trying to convince myself to meditate or to work out, right? It's, it really kind of affects all aspects of human life. Yeah, I think, I mean, language really determines what we pay attention to. I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I have a one-year-old daughter who's learning how to talk and seeing her start to put words to things and like point them out. You know, she's so excited to point out things that she knows the words to, but then how already at such a young age, that's limiting what she pays attention to in her surroundings. That probably happened for everyone at a young age that we learn to pay attention to certain things based on what we had concepts for and language for, and maybe we sort of filter out other things. And so I thought about that when reading your book in terms of like the concept of wellness, the tension between the logic of restoration and the logic of enhancement, it sort of collapses and people end up speaking about both things in the same sentence. We're thinking about illness in wellness terms and we're thinking about wellness in illness terms, right? And and these things get so collapsed that I think it becomes easy to sort of buy into some of what the industry is selling as supposed solutions for illness or supposed tools for optimization. Because I think whether we're feeling ill and dealing with a chronic condition or whether we're feeling well, but think we should be feeling better or having some symptoms that we think are like signs of incipient illness, we're at always feeling at risk of not being well. And so therefore, we're always more susceptible to, to pitches that make us feel like something is going to save us from ourselves or save us from from the illness that's just around the corner. Yeah. And that's that's something I thought about a lot 
one thing I came across early in my research was an article. I think it's from way back. I think it's from like 94 or something, but it's two ethnographers, Nictor and Thompson, who did an ethnography and the article is called For My Wellness, Not My Illness. And they did an ethnographic study of people who use supplements and they were really interested in the reasons people cited. And the title of the article actually comes from one research participant who said, oh, that supplement, I take that for my wellness, not my illness. And so they really conceived of these as really separate things. What I'm really interested in, and I think part of the reason why I use this metaphor of wellness being a language is because language is the stuff we think with as we sort of understand and interpret the world around us. And what I wanted to highlight in the book is how wellness works as a kind of universe of discourse that is very self-reinforcing. And you mentioned the idea of risk a minute ago, and I think risk was really important for me in thinking about how the language of wellness works, because scholars who have studied risk, and even communication scholars who have studied risk, like Lisa Karanen, have studied how the more at risk we feel, the more risk mitigating behaviors we engage in, right? And so so for Karanen, Karanen examines disaster preparedness, particularly she looks at rhetorics of bioterror in particular. She's a, a colleague in communication who's at University of Colorado, Denver. And it was her her work really on this concept of autopoiesis that that became the framework for the book. And autopoiesis just means self-driving. And I argue that wellness is a self-driving discourse. And this concept I borrow from Karenin, who looks at how, so in terms of risk preparedness, when there are big bioterror preparedness exercises that happen in the US, as they engage in these exercises to protect from risks of bioterror, the more at risk people feel, and then the more sort of preventative measures they engage in. And so, so these rhetorics of risk in terms of bioterror for Karenin, sort of spiral and grow. And I really saw something very similar happening in wellness culture, where the idea of risk in particular helps the language of wellness spiral and grow kind of out of control in a way, because we're always at risk of something in the world of wellness, whether we're at risk of becoming ill, or at risk of just failing to self-optimize, you know, to not live our best lives. And I started to wonder, like, what would it be like if we just embraced, you know, sitting on the couch playing Mario Kart for an evening when we could be, you know, doing laundry or, you know, maximizing our social time with friends or other things? Like, what does it mean to just waste time? And so that became kind of a big piece of what I was thinking about. So fascinating. And I think all of this speaks to the fact that wellness culture has many problems and that feeling of constantly being at risk can make people feel worse in the long run. And wellness, the emphasis on the individual responsibility, I think has a flip side of like individual blame and self-blame when things don't work out, when we get ill, when we fail to optimize and whatever. And so all of that to me is speaks to the harms of wellness culture. And you write in the book too, you say wellness is among the most compelling and possibly most harmful concepts that govern contemporary Western life. And yet you also say that your book isn't meant to be a polemical takedown of wellness culture because wellness culture provides some important benefits for people. And I think that's really important. And that's something I also grappled with in writing this new book, which is probably a bit more polemical maybe than yours in some ways. But I also have so much compassion for people who find themselves attracted to wellness culture, find value in wellness practices. And I was very much one of those people in the past, as as I am still to somewhat lesser degree today, as someone with multiple chronic conditions that I'll probably always be managing. So I'm just curious to like unpack a little bit of that need for compassion and that need for understanding of the aspects of wellness culture that people find helpful or the participants in your study found helpful and why it's important to acknowledge those even as we critique wellness culture and even as we recognize its profound harms that it's causing. Yeah, this is a great question. I, I had to work really hard to not be polemical because I had to grapple with things that I found kind of hard to get on board with, right? Like some things I, I actually found pretty easy to get on board with, some things I find harder to get on board with in terms of different wellness behaviors people, you know, engage in. So I don't know. I'm not very psyched about going to a vitamin IV clinic, for example. But I understand why people do it. 
And I think that that's really key because that gets lost because I think there is really important information in sort of letting your guard down and trying to work within the kind of internal logics that people employ when they make decisions about their health. If you enter the situation sure that you know the right thing, then it makes it much harder to see the really valid reasons people make decisions that they make. Even if it's like a device like... I really try hard not to make fun of things that people do for health, but I feel like, you know, a device like the Healy device is maybe one it's okay to make fun of. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like little gadgets you can buy online that, you know, ostensibly do something amazing for you, but probably do nothing at all. But people are looking for solutions to problems and they're not finding them elsewhere. And that just really gets lost. And so I think that there's definitely room for correcting scientific misinformation and disinformation. I think that there's value in that for sure. But if we want to kind of address the upstream causes of why people make the decisions they make about their health, you know, why do people choose not to vaccinate themselves or their children, for example? Why do people eat certain kinds of diets or take certain kinds of supplements? I think we need to kind of make ourselves a bit vulnerable in our inquiry Because what we find is that what's at the very center of someone's reasoning, you know, it it might all seem illogical on the surface, but if you get to the core, it's usually about some kind of unmet need. And so for a lot of people, it's, it's chronic conditions, degenerative conditions, conditions for which biomedicine isn't able to offer, you know, a lot of support, things like pain, low energy, brain fog, these are things that are extremely difficult to address. So for a lot of people, particularly my research participants, they just, they weren't finding any help or relief anywhere else. But what was really key is that for the most part, the people I interviewed were were pretty circumspect actually about the different supplements they take. They weren't sure if they worked or not. They knew that a lot of it was about marketing and sales pitches, but something I heard often was, but it's the only thing there is for me to do where I feel like I'm doing something for myself because I don't have any other options because it won't hurt. And, you know, I think part of that actually circles back into mainstream pharmaceutical medicine and the ideas for, you know, decades now that health is an individual responsibility, that we are each responsible for making choices about our health. And then we're primed by, pharmaceutical marketing, advertising, even the way that doctors in clinics prescribe and talk about medication is that the right step always to take is to take action, to seek a treatment in one way or another. And so in a lot of ways, people who are engaging in sort of wellness-oriented behaviors, I'm looking particularly at supplements, they're kind of acting in accordance with those foundational logics of pharmaceutical biomedicine, which is, you know, that on that idea of like, I can't remember who said this, but a pill for every ill, right? That idea that, you know, we can and should treat anything that can be treated. And so I think that that's really an important piece also. Yeah, it's hugely important. It's so interesting to think about how conventional medicine is sometimes justifiably, but also I think there's sort of like an amplification of this, that it's called out for just prescribing pills and not getting to the root cause. And I think that's rhetoric that shows up a lot in alternative healthcare spaces and just wellness culture more generally. And ironically, I think a lot of those spaces are prescribing pills too. It's just a different form. It's just supplements instead of pharmaceuticals with the added layer of potential harm that supplements are really largely unregulated and you don't really know what's in them. Nobody's kind of looking out for you before they go to market in the US. And from what I understand from your book, Canada as well, that there's not really pre-market regulation on supplements and the supplement industry in these countries. And so people are really taking a risk when they take supplements, but they're framed as being more natural, more gentle, you know, a better alternative to pharmaceuticals, even though sometimes they literally contain pharmaceuticals that are just undeclared on the label but this, the wellness rhetoric around them is that they're always good and they can't hurt. And I think a lot of people do, you know, I've found in my research and, you know, working with clients and also my personal experience that it was the same thing. Like so many people who are skeptical, thoughtful, you know, consider the evidence type of people when faced with 
health concern that they don't have good answers for in the conventional healthcare system will kind of shrug and go, well, what's the harm of taking this pill or what's the harm of changing my diet in this way? And what I've found is that there can be significant harm in doing those things. But I think it's it's understandable to think that, especially given the failings of the conventional healthcare system. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I don't mean to be down on biomedicine either, because any given health practitioner or health practice or health specialty can only do so much, right? And a lot of the failings of biomedicine are more political and economic failings than the disciplines themselves. If we look at how medicine is prioritized, you know, economically, how it's structured in terms of policy, you know, how are doctor's appointments scheduled, how much time do patients get, uh, you know, and that also comes down into medical schools and medical education, right, where we talk about how we want well-rounded individuals to be doctors. But then if you think about the kinds of hours that are required for doctors in their training, the kinds of things they're taught, like all of these things are kind of a bit of a perfect storm that you can't, you know, you can't point to any one bad actor, but it really, this whole system is set up to create some pretty substantial cracks. And for a lot of people, wellness is appealing because it gives them a sense of agency, right? So you don't have to go to a doctor to get a prescription. You don't have to go to a pharmacy. You know, you can go to like Whole Foods with like, you know, wood floors and like organic produce displays and and it feels like something good you're doing for yourself. And that's something I saw again and again in my research across all of the different types of materials I examined was that people found significant value in being able to do good things for themselves to make them feel good. Because many people feel really disempowered within the medical system and unimportant, and they don't get to express the full range of their concerns. Each specialty kind of has its own sort of specialty body system or part. So there's not a lot of space to talk about kind of that bigger picture. And the reason why I look at supplements in particular is for exactly the reasons you cite, because supplements are for the most part pills and bottles just like most pharmaceuticals are and so they're so substantially like and yet unlike pharmaceuticals that it's a really interesting place to look for how wellness culture operates because for a lot of people they really think of supplements as just fundamentally distinct even though, as you mentioned, sometimes they actually even contain pharmaceuticals, they're not tested for safety and efficacy. And most people don't actually know that. At least in Canada, what I found consistently is that people think that supplements are regulated by Health Canada. There are regulations, but they all they are aftermarket. So that's really key. And then, you know, if you track supplement companies ownership high enough, you often get to a pharmaceutical company anyway. And supplements, it's not like someone has taken a plant and like ground it up finely and put it straight in a capsule, right? They are synthesized in labs. There's just this really interesting tension. So that's why I focused on supplements in particular. But I think a lot of my findings can be extrapolated to other manifestations of wellness culture. Yeah. One thing that I found really interesting was your discussion of the term toxins and why they've become such a focus of wellness culture and why detoxes sell so well. And I think it's a really interesting and important counterpoint to some of the debunking that happens in mainstream publications that we talked about. And I've participated in that myself. I wrote a a piece in 2016 for Refinery29, why detoxes and cleanses always fail and talking about how the liver works and the kidneys work and why these things are bogus. And like you said, I think that's that's important and has its place. And there are people maybe who are ready to hear that or find that helpful counterpoints themselves to kind of push back against the pressure to engage in these sorts of things. But I think there's this, this other piece that you explore in your book that I think is really important about why toxins have captured our imagination and why they've resonated with so many people, you know, why detoxes have, have felt like the answer for so many people. So loved for you to share a little bit about why you think that is. Sure. Let me just preface this by saying that I don't think detoxes work. I don't know. So one of the kind of the funny things about my work, because I'm a humanities scholar, I'm a communication scholar, I've, I have never driven deep into the literature to find out like whether or not things actually work. I'm not actually interested in that myself. I think that's a different question for different people to answer. 
I'm really interested in what are people looking for and what are they getting and how are they making decisions? How do they weigh different kinds of evidence? And I think the idea of toxins is really key to understanding this because what we know about toxins in our environment, and by toxins here, I mean dangerous chemicals. I think we know everything is actually a chemical. And so we can talk about the rhetoric of chemicals in wellness language because that term is often used in a very specific way. But we know about environmental contamination, for example, from industry, from agriculture. We know that certain mattress coatings can end up in tissues in the human body, fire retardants, et cetera. Like we know that the boundaries of our bodies are permeable and toxins capture sort of a very interesting piece of, of the larger puzzle because I talk about this in the book, our bodies are opaque. We can't see inside them. We don't know what's going on inside them. If you look at contemporary public discourse about health, most of us have sort of secret illnesses harbored within us at any given time. And we need to engage in really close surveillance to figure out what's going on inside of our bodies. And so we're already primed to think of our bodies as potentially ill. And now we also think of them as potentially contaminated. And, you know, if you think about decades of environmental deregulation and loosening restrictions on dangerous outputs in the air, in water, in soil, you know, I think people are pretty rightly concerned about being surrounded every day by toxins. There's no easy answer for that, right? Like we can't stop breathing. COVID was a really good moment on this, right? Because then we realized like, oh yeah, when we're out in public together, we breathe all over each other. And so what's outside comes in, in our bodies. And so toxins, I think, really capture people's interest because you can control to some extent, you know, what you eat and how much your body moves, et cetera. But it's it's incredibly difficult to control what seeps in without us noticing, whether it's chemicals in sunscreen or coatings on the foods that we eat or the mattresses we sleep on or the air that we're walking through in the city, et cetera, et cetera. And so detoxes, one of the things that they do kind of rhetorically is help us feel like we're able to protect ourselves and to purify ourselves of these kinds of daily exposures. And so I think that that's one reason why detoxes are so popular. And so, you know, the question of debunking detoxes, if someone's really into cleanses, because they have these deep penetrating concerns, telling them they have a liver and kidneys, probably won't allay their concern. Because I think most people feel like what we're exposed to every day is maybe more than a body can bear. And so the body needs some extra help with that. And so I think that's one of the key appeals with detoxes. The thing about a detox rhetorically is they're very persuasive because you do have inputs and outputs, right? When you do a cleanse, and I think this is largely because a lot of supplement supported cleanses contain laxatives, but you know, there's poop at the end of this that you can see marked changes in. So that's like a very physical indication that something important has happened in the body. I didn't put this in the book. Uh, I did end up going on an unfortunate internet rabbit hole. I haven't looked in years, so I can't promise it's still there. But if you looked up like cleanse poop or keywords like that, people would actually take pictures of things that came out of their colons during cleanses. And what they would do is cite this as evidence that the cleanse is effective. And they would refer to it as toxic sludge. So it's all the toxins coming out of your body. But it also works quite metaphorically too. And I think this is something that that Alan Levinovitz touches on. We can also think of cleanses as sort of rites of purification that help us kind of renew ourselves. And so there's kind of a whole metaphorical dimension of cleanses and toxins as well, that I think it makes them really compelling. And in a way that debunking probably can't access those sort of deep social and psychological and spiritual significations. That's so well said. I really, really could talk to you forever. I really appreciate your work. I feel like this is so aligned with this podcast and with just my interests these past few years. And I'm really grateful to you for coming on and sharing all of that with us. So can you tell us where people can find you and learn more about your work and get your book? Sure. My book is available at all major booksellers that sell academic books. So not a lot of brick and mortar stores probably, but certainly available on the publisher's website, which is Johns Hopkins University Press, as well as Amazon and Barnes and Noble, et cetera. 
And I can be found on my website at www.colleendurkatch.com or on Twitter at Colleen Durkatch. Not sure how much longer I'll be on Twitter for, but it's a bit of a dumpster fire these days, but that's where I am for now. Yeah, we'll put links to all that in the show notes too. I also recently got off Twitter, so I feel you on that. <laughs> I tried <laughs> I tried looking for you and I did not find you and I thought, well, good for her. <laughs> yeah, I was there for years and I just said, nope, not anymore. I went on maternity leave and didn't use it for a year. And then I was like, well, what am I even doing here then? It just kind of feels like a liability now with Elon Musk's takeover and all of that. Yeah, I hear you. It's such a good academic tool. So I'm kind of hanging on right now. But but I think I'll, I'll go that way too, because it's not good for my wellness to be on there. Right, right. Yeah, that's a whole other piece of this conversation too, is like the impact of social media on our collective well-being. I'm sure we could have a whole other conversation about that. So we'll have to have a part two at some point. All right. I'll look forward to that. Yes, me too. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks so much to our guest for being here, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And you can get new episodes delivered by email every other week by signing up at rethinkingwellness.substack.com, where you can also become a paid subscriber for early access to episodes and to help support the show. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. If you're looking for help healing your own relationship with food and breaking free from diet and wellness culture, I'd love for you to check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. You can learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. If you have any questions for me about wellness and diet culture, you can send them in at christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have them answered in my newsletter or possibly even on this podcast sometime in the future. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer, and administrative support is provided by Julianne Watasek and her team at A-Team Virtual. Our album art was created by Tara Jacoby, and theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.